The Sermon on the Mount continues. Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 17 through 20. And that can be found on page number 1502. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. The New International Version here calls this the fulfillment of the law. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus continues and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Jesus has been saying some pretty radical things so far in the Sermon on the Mount. We, uh, just, if we just take everything we know so far from the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus was on the record for saying and for not saying things that people were already noticing. According to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven had already come near in him, And all anyone had to do to enter into this kingdom was repent of their sins, which just simply means they agree with God about their sin, and they turn to him for his mercy and for his grace. He was establishing himself as a rabbi, but he wasn't going out and finding the most qualified students, those who had memorized almost the entire Old Testament. No, he he went and found some fishermen and called them to come and be his disciples. And then we're told that he's out preaching the good news of the kingdom, which is the truth that the kingdom is available to anyone who simply comes to him poor in spirit. And so if you agree that God is holy and righteous and worthy of all your worship and all your adoration, and that he demands and deserves your complete devotion and obedience, and if you agree that you are a sinner who has completely failed and rebelled against God, and who deserves to be punished for your sin. And if you agree, and if you know that you simply turn to him for his mercy, poor in spirit, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. Not will be yours. It is yours now, simply by turning to him. Now, some of the things that Jesus was leaving out, He doesn't say anything about sacrifices or the temple. He doesn't say anything about keeping the law of Moses. He doesn't say anything about traditions or the place of the religious leaders like the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then he also speaks as if his word is the final word. (laughs) So here Jesus is letting just anyone and everyone into the kingdom And all they have to do is realize they need his mercy and turn to him for it. 
He makes no other demand on people as a condition for entering the kingdom except that they simply believe this message. You don't have to turn or you don't have to leave your sin in order to come to him. Just just come to him. And so naturally, when you say things like this, people start to wonder. Is this guy trying to get rid of the law? If you tell people things like this, aren't they going to think they can just live however they want? But that's not all Jesus is doing. We know from the rest of the Gospels that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's not making his disciples fast. He's touching lepers, but he's not going and performing the ritual cleansing requirements after touching something that's unclean. According to the Jewish religious leaders, he's not keeping the Sabbath. In fact, he's going around talking about how he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's declaring all foods clean. He's forgiving sins on his own authority. And then in Matthew chapter 5, what we're going to go on to see in the next several weeks is that he's going to say things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And what he means by that is, you've heard it written down in the law of Moses, which came directly from God himself. You've heard that, but I tell you, as if what he has to say has more authority than what's even written in the law of Moses. So who does this Jesus think he is? And so at this point, Jesus knows people are wondering all of this. And so he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. And he says that because he knows people are thinking that he has come to abolish the law. Then he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets here, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. He's talking about everything that we know is contained in Genesis through Zechariah and Malachi. Uh, so, So the law was the first five books of the Old Testament, which was the law that came from Moses. And the prophets was everything else. All the historical books, all of the wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs, all of the other books that we usually associate as the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And Jesus is saying that he did not come to abolish any of that. Instead, he says he came to fulfill them. Which begs the question, what does it mean to fulfill the Old Testament? Well, part of that has been answered so far in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is constantly showing how something about Jesus' life and ministry fulfills something that was written in the Old Testament. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And so he fulfills all the promises to their descendants. Uh, In Matthew chapter 1, he talks about the prophecy in Isaiah where a virgin will have a child and will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy because he is God with us. In chapter 2, he fulfills the prophecy from Hosea, where out of Egypt I called my son. In chapter 3, right, he's baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. In chapter 4, there's another um, prophecy from Isaiah that he fulfills because he goes back to Galilee and begins his ministry there. But is that all Jesus means here? Is he fulfilling the Old Testament simply because the details of his life were predicted in the Old Testament? Or does he mean something more? So to understand what Jesus means by fulfill here, uh, 
I think we have to compare it to the word abolish. So Jesus' exact words are, he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so whatever he means by fulfill, it, it must be the opposite of what it means to abolish. And so to abolish the law and the prophets would be to tear down the Old Testament, to get rid of it. And the opposite of that then would be to confirm the Old Testament and to establish it. And so Jesus is saying that the Old Testament has value and that there's a specific purpose for everything written there. Jesus came to affirm that value and he came to affirm that purpose. Think of it this way. It's not a good idea to stick your finger into a light socket. We tell children not to stick their fingers into light sockets. We've made a law for our children that they must obey. Do not stick your fingers in light sockets. And we help them with that law by buying little plastic pieces that look like, look like plugs that we put into the light socket to help them remember. But I would never tell an electrician not to stick his finger in a light socket. In fact, you might see an electrician doing all kinds of things with light sockets that the average person, especially children, should not do. And that's because when we know about something, how it works and what it's for, we don't abolish the previous law. We confirm and establish the previous law. People still should not stick their fingers in light sockets, especially not children. And even the skilled electrician doesn't go and just stick his finger in a light socket. First, he shuts off the power to that light socket. And so from the outside looking in, our expanding knowledge of something, its value and its purpose can make it seem like we've abolished the previous law. So when your child wakes up from their nap and she comes out and she sees the electrician elbow deep into the light socket, she's going to think to herself, well, I thought we weren't supposed to stick our fingers in the light socket. Who is this man? What is he doing? And Jesus is saying that there was a time when his people just needed to know don't put your finger in the light socket. But he's here now to teach us about electricity, how to harness it, how to protect yourself when you're working with it. He's not abolishing the law. He's taking us further into its power and into its purpose. So Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets not only because the details of his life were predicted in the Old Testament, but because everything in the Old Testament points forward to him. Just like the command, don't put your finger in the light socket, points forward to the reality of electricity, all of the commands of the Old Testament point forward to the reality of Christ. He is the true sacrifice for sin. He is the true Israelite. He is the ultimate prophet because he is God's word. He is the clearest revelation of God because he is God. He is the ultimate priest because he makes the ultimate sacrifice. And he is the true son of David and the king of the Jews. In fact, the more you know about the Old Testament and how every massive, it's so massive, right? You look at the Old Testament and it's like 80% of the Bible. And we have this sense of like, oh no, that's just so big and vast. I can never understand any of it. But the sweet thing about the Old Testament is we enter into it. The more we understand all these intricacies, the more brilliant Christ becomes. Think about like somebody who, uh, who knows about diamonds. You know, if me, I see a diamond, it has inclusions everywhere, it looks terrible, but I think, oh, that's a pretty diamond. But somebody who knows about diamonds, they, 
they can see how majestic and beautiful a diamond is because they know all of the things that make a diamond beautiful. And the more we know the Old Testament, the more Jesus and everything that he's done for us is beautiful. He fulfills the Old Testament because he obeys all the commands of God perfectly. He always loved God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. And even though he earned his salvation through his obedience to the law, he also suffers the penalty and the curse of the law in place of sinners like you and me. And so he fulfills the demands of the law, and he suffers the penalty for failing to keep the law as well. And so nothing in the Old Testament is insignificant. Which is why Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now the first thing I want to point out here is, look, Jesus says, For truly I tell you. When you're reading in the Old Testament and a prophet is speaking on behalf of God, what they say is, Thus says the Lord. But when Jesus arrives, (laughs) he is the Lord. So he says, truly, I tell you. Now, every written language has a small or has small little marks that make all the difference in the world. In English, if you fail to cross a T or dot an I, people read that and wonder, is that an L? If you, if you don't take your uh, line on your H all the way to the top and you, and you leave it down low, it looks like what? An N, Right? Well, the Hebrew language is exactly the same way. Uh, Hebrew has like literally dots that if you put the dot in the wrong spot, it's a completely different letter. They have another letter called a yod that looks just like an apostrophe. So easy to miss. And so if Jesus were to say this verse in English, he would say something like this, until heaven and earth disappear, not a single dot on an I or a cross on a T will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, this does not mean that God's word is temporary. This does not mean that after heaven and earth disappear, then God's word is going to disappear. In fact, we know that's not true because in Psalm 119.89, it says this, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. So God's word will never disappear. In fact, heaven and earth are not going to disappear either. If you look at the book of Revelation, what our hope is as Christians is that heaven is going to come down to earth and that Jesus is going to make all things new. So Jesus is not looking forward here to a time when God's law will no longer be valid. Instead, he's saying that God's word is more sure and more firm than the most sure and most firm thing that anyone can think of. There is nothing that every human being on this planet counts on more than the earth itself and the stars in the sky. When I wake up in the morning and I spin my body around, I am very confident that my feet are going to land on the earth. I'm very confident that the sun is going to come up. And Jesus is saying that the law of God is more permanent than even the earth and the sky. And it will accomplish everything it says it will accomplish, everything it is intended to accomplish, and that there can be no doubt. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so these first two verses that we've looked at so far, they are intended to establish what Jesus is about to say next. At this point, though, Jesus is not specifically dealing with why it's now okay to eat bacon and wear a shirt made of two different fabrics, things that are uh, outlawed in the law of Moses. 
Those are important things, and there's good explanations for those things, and we will get to a fuller explanation of all that as we move through the book of Matthew. And the short answer is that all those things helped uh, define the people of Israel and keep them distinct from the other nations, and they all pointed forward to Christ. And those questions are part of what Jesus is dealing with here. But the main question is much bigger, and that is this. If we don't need to leave our sin in order to come to Jesus, and all we have to do is come to him repentant and poor in spirit, and the kingdom is ours, then what is our motivation to keep the commandments? If we're saved by God's free grace through faith, then what is the purpose of the law? And Jesus' answer so far is that he has come not to get rid of a single commandment, right? You still shouldn't put your finger in the light socket. Instead, he has come to confirm and establish every single one. In fact, every dot on top of an I and every cross on a T of the law is more permanent than the earth and the sky. And every commandment will accomplish what it was intended to accomplish. And those commandments are just as binding on a Christian now as they were on God's people before Christ came. Which is why he goes on in the next verse to say this. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the contrast here. It's not between those who keep the commands and those who do not. Uh, the translation set aside uh, in the NIV is an unfortunate one because that implies that these people are just disregarding the law. The actual Greek word there is the Greek word luo, which means to loosen. Other translations translate that relax. Okay? Um, so the idea here is not someone who completely disregards the law, Jesus is going to be clear in the very next verse that people who disregard the law completely won't even inherit the kingdom of heaven. No, this is someone who loosens or relaxes the commandments. This is someone who hears the command of God and thinks, oh, God can't really expect me to do that. This is the person who who hears the command of God to mourn over their sin and and they think, I I can't mourn over all my sin. I mean, there's some sins I kind of like. God can't really expect me to be totally pure in heart. I mean, I'm never going to be pure in heart completely. So, so he can't possibly mean, mean that. This is the person who tells other people that God just wants us to believe in Jesus and then give it the old college try. Remember, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. So I'll do my best and God will do the rest. This is because when we hear the commands from God of what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to be, our natural response is to think that's impossible. And so we we loosen, we relax the commands because we think there's just no way. We hear things like how drunkards won't enter the kingdom of heaven and we think, well, that's got to be talking about alcoholics who get drunk every day. It's certainly not talking about me 
who just gets drunk sometimes. We tell ourselves that the tithe, well, that was only for the Old Testament, which means, which means we don't have to give 10%. But if we really looked at all the passages in the New Testament about money, we would have to conclude that God might actually be calling us to a, a more radical kind of generosity than merely 10%. And as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to confront us with other ways we loosen the commands of God in terms of our anger and our lust and our faithfulness and our truth-telling and loving our enemy. And so my sense is that for most Christians, myself included, given the option to minimize the law and risk being the least in the kingdom of heaven or in practicing the law and teaching others to do the same in order to be the greatest, most of us would be content to just be the least to sneak in and to avoid hell. But there are those people who do strive to obey God's commands. The the super Christians, right? The The ones who live lives of discipline and excellence, they read their Bible every day, they take the commands of God very seriously, they're out there handing out tracts and sharing the gospel, they want to be a missionary, or they give up a lucrative career and go and run a non-profit. But does doing all that really make them the greatest in the kingdom? And if it did, wouldn't it mean that their good works were earning them this great place in the kingdom? And couldn't someone be doing all those things and still be a really rotten person on the inside? You see, the the temptation after hearing something like what Jesus says here in verse 19 is to either say, eh, it doesn't matter. I don't mind being someone who relaxes the law and is least in the kingdom of heaven. As long as I'm in, that's all that matters to me, baby. Or to think, no way. No way, I'm going to keep the commandments and I'm going to teach others to do the same because I want to be great in the kingdom. I'm going to be a a totally radical Christian, sold out for Jesus, and then of course I'm going to judge everybody who is not trying as hard as me and probably going to assume they're not even a Christian. But Jesus is not actually giving us either of these two options. If that's how we read verse 19, we're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying because he goes on to say, In the very next verse, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, now this is confusing because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the ones who, if anyone was practicing the commands of God and teaching others to do the same, it was them. If there was anyone who was guaranteed then to be first in the kingdom of heaven, then it was going to be the Pharisees. They were the ones who had taken the Old Testament and they had figured out the 613 commandments that you either had to obey or to avoid giving yourself to. And they, they were meticulous about keeping every single one of those perfectly. And for someone like you and me, who sometimes feel overwhelmed by our just basic responsibilities, let alone figuring out how to go out and be a radical Christian, this first can seem impossible. And so one of the ways people in the Reformed tradition 
sometimes try to explain this verse away is by saying this. They say, well, uh, since I can't be more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I just have to have a righteousness that is more than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And since I have faith in Jesus and in his perfect righteousness and he gives me his righteousness, well, then I'm good to go, right? Jesus takes on all my sin and then he gives me all his good works. He dies in my place for my sin and I go to heaven as if I was as righteous as Jesus. And that's how I am more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now it's true (laughs) that when we come to Jesus repentant and poor in spirit, he gives us his robes of righteousness and we are covered in his righteousness. And because of his righteousness, we are accepted by God. That is true, but that's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that we have to actually be more holy than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. He says, if your righteousness, he says, your righteousness must surpass theirs. Think about it. The question he's dealing with in this passage is based on his teaching about being able to enter the kingdom simply by being poor in spirit, which raises that question, well, what about obedience? By teaching that all one needs to do is repent of their sin and come to him, poor in spirit, you're instantly in the kingdom, you don't have to leave your sin first, you don't have to clean yourself up, you just agree with God that your sin is rebellion and deserves hell, and then you turn to him for mercy and he will give it to you and welcome you into the kingdom. When we say things like that, people automatically wonder about the rules. And Jesus' answer so far is that he upholds the law. He came to fulfill it. In fact, even those within the kingdom of God will have a greater or lesser place within the kingdom based on how faithfully they practice and teach the law of God. Verse 19. And then he drops this bomb in verse 20 about how our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to even enter the kingdom of heaven. And in context, he's not talking about foreign righteousness given to us by Jesus. He's talking about real life on the ground, lived out holiness. And we know that not only because of the context in the Sermon on the Mount up to verse 20, but because everything he's about to talk about next. He's going to go into anger and lust and faithfulness, and lying, and loving our enemy. And then he's going to conclude that in verse 48 by saying this, that be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how do we resolve this tension? Where on one hand, Jesus teaches that all it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven is a heart that sees its spiritual poverty and turns to God for mercy, where we don't have to leave our sin first, but instead we just come to him. And the fact that on the other hand, Jesus is now requiring that our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law if we're even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is this an impossible contradiction? No. First of all, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law may have appeared great but it was a quantity of righteousness, not a quality of righteousness. 
Sure, they were very disciplined, probably more disciplined than anybody in this room. They may have given meticulous effort to keeping 613 different commands, but their kind of righteousness was totally external, and it did not touch their heart. If the command said, do not murder, they thought, well, I've never killed anybody. (laughs) Took care of that one. If the command says, do not commit adultery, they think to themselves, well, I've never had intercourse with anybody but my spouse. Good to go. Took care of that one. But Jesus, as he will explain as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, he is looking for the kind of obedience that comes from a heart that sees its poverty, mourns over sin, and then hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And a heart like that is automatically more righteous than a Pharisee. Whether, whether we're self-controlled or not yet, whether we've grown in holiness or not yet, the moment we turn to God in repentance and faith, we are instantly more righteous than a Pharisee. Instantly. Because the Pharisee doesn't even recognize the depth of sin inside his heart. Uh, I got a quote. It's not on the screen. I I, I saw this quote on Twitter yesterday. (laughs) Isn't that great? This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a um, uh, famous uh, pastor from England in the first part of the 20th century. And he said this. He said, Indeed, there is no more terrible instance of ungodliness than the case of the person who does not see any need for Christ. Let me say that again. Indeed, there is no more terrible instance of ungodliness than the case of the person who does not see any need for Christ. It is our need for him. It is feeling our need for him. That is a gift of faith that causes us to turn to him for his mercy. And the moment we do that, we instantly are more righteous than a Pharisee because we know how desperately we need Jesus. Later, Jesus will go on to say about the Pharisees, I'll say, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So they were self-indulgent, they were hypocrites, and they were wicked. So a heart that agrees with God about its sin and turns for him to mercy is instantly not a hypocritical heart anymore. By virtue of the fact that, that you recognize, we recognize how much we need Jesus. And then the fact that we desire not to be self-indulgent, the fact that we desire not to be wicked, instantly more holy. And so when we ask the question, how good is good enough? Right? That's the question every teenager formulates in their mind as they start realizing all of these great truths. Well, how good do I have to be? What's, what's the line? When we ask that question, what we're really looking for is to find out what level of obedience do I have to meet in order to know that I'm saved? 
Which really the question is, how can I save myself? That's what that question is answering or asking. How good do I have to be to know that I'm in? But on the other side, if we demand obedience as proof of salvation, we will always wonder if our level of holiness is enough. Some will be satisfied that they're good enough. Others will live with a fear that they're not good enough. And all of that is a terrible treadmill. And Jesus has come to free us from a license to sin, which is really just still slavery to sin. And he's also come to free us from legalism, which is slavery to the law. And so what it means to be under grace is not that the law doesn't matter. What it means to be under grace is that Jesus has met the demands of the law in our place And he has freed us now to live out the requirements of the law as a response to everything that he's done for us. That's what it means. Um, Open up your pew Bibles and turn to Psalm 19. Sorry, this is different than what I have here. You know, we we looked at this. This was a sermon I preached at the end of um, December. But just look at verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19. This is page uh, 858. So here, if, if we are living in such a way that we really, that we really just want to know how good do I have to be so I can go on sinning and still not go to hell, and, and you read these verses, you're going to realize that it's not possible. But, but if we've turned to Christ for his mercy and for his grace, recognizing that, that we have nothing to offer him and, and that he demands perfection and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's not only freed us from the penalty of the law, but freed us to obey the righteous requirements of the law through the power of the Spirit. And, and now we realize, we read these verses, they're going to be sweet to our soul, Right? Verse 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Who here doesn't want to have a revived soul? Don't you long for that? Don't you long for a soul that is, that is alive? The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I don't know about you guys, but I am overwhelmed by how simple I actually am. You know, I, I want to pretend how wise I am because I'm like a quasi-scholar, but I'm not really. I don't, I don't have a PhD, right? I, I want um, my flesh, everyone to think how smart I am, but, but reality, I'm just simple, barely hanging on. And so I, I need his law. But, but if I'm coming to his law and I realize I need to be wise in order to somehow earn a place before him, then this is going to be a burden to me. But if I'm a, if I'm a wretched sinner who's been freed by the grace of God and invited into everything that says here, then this is all a gift to me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, the precepts of the law are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. See, the law of God is, is so associated with, the, with God himself. 
that when we come to love God, because he has forgiven us of our sins, granted us repentance, when we come to love him because of that, we can't not also love his law. Because his law is an expression of his character. It's an expression of his goodness. And it's a gift to us to teach us how to be the kind of thing we actually are. And so as Christians, we have this beautiful, beautiful reality where we are justified by faith alone. We are in the kingdom simply because we believe the promises of the gospel. And then once we're in the kingdom, boom, now his law becomes something that we can give ourselves to by the power of his spirit and all the blessings that the law offers us become sweet joy to us because they show us how we can love God by loving our neighbor and by living a life that's holy and pleasing to him. Right? Not, not because we're afraid, but because we know we've been invited into this wonderful life. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount and we talk about anger and lust and lying and faithfulness and all these things, it's going to be this sweet invitation from Jesus. And he's going to show us what the evidence of a heart like that is. And our temptation is going to be to hear that evidence and think, oh no, that's not me, therefore I'm not that. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is the evidence that I'm going to grow in you. It's going to take a long time and you're, you're never going to feel like you're there. But it's sweet and glorious and wonderful and awesome. But it's also going to warn us as well. And we can't take the bite off that warning either. But that warning is never to think, oh, I'm not a Christian. That warning is just a reminder to run back to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that your law is so good and that we ought not to stick our finger in the light socket. But we're also thankful that in Christ, all of the demands of the law have been met, the penalties of the law have been paid, and in him, through union with him, by faith, we are yours. We are in your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray if there's anyone here for them who those realities are hard to hold on to and hard to believe, I pray, God, that you would encourage them that they don't need to look inside themselves to know these things are true. They look outside to you and what you say is true in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would invite them by your spirit to believe even if they don't feel like they believe. And if there's others here today, Father, I pray for them that they would be encouraged. They'd be encouraged by your grace in their life as they do see evidence of what your spirit is producing in them. And then for those, Father, who are struggling, who, who don't see evidence and who even feel rebellious towards you and towards your law, I pray, God, that what Christ has done the offer of the gospel and his grace would cause them to receive and rest today. In Jesus' name we pray.